This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5pm in the City of London. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. The big story today, US inflation coming through at 7%. If you look at the component parts as well, it looks like it could persist for a little while longer, yet we may not be quite at the peak. The last time we had this kind of inflation, The Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. 1982 so was so top good. of the pops. And E.T. E. the movie. E.T. the movie. Yes. Oh, yeah. There you go. That takes me back. I remember this. Oh, I remember so it well. So this was this was Tim, what was thank happening. thank you, by the way, for playing that. This is yep. give some props to Tim Harrow here, our producer. That just made my whole day. Um, so Ronald Reagan was president at that point. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister over here. Paul Volcker was the Fed chair. We all know what Paul, Paul Volcker had to do to bring inflation under control at that point. The big question now, is Jay Powell going to have to step up and deliver the knockout blow when it Ooh. comes to inflation? Ooh, I like it. Nice one. Um, yes, and though you could look at the market, tech is actually higher today. Yields pretty much go nowhere. Dollar now at a two-month low. It feels like the dollar is where the weakest point is at. Oh, buy eye of the tiger. Um and you have to wonder, is this just a relief rally? Was it a sell the rumor by the news? Um, or do we actually feel like we can stabilize here and, uh, and break evens actually rolled over just a touch? Um, does the Fed have it in hand? Um, I do not want to be Lyle Brainerd, though, tomorrow, having to deal with still a seven handle on inflation and certain areas like rents, which are much stickier and much higher. Yep. I think she's going to have to answer some really tricky questions, which I think could be really interesting. But talking of survivors, the real question is, is Boris Johnson going to be a survivor? Mm. Today, he was forced to apologize for a story that has really captivated Alex's attention. Uh, This party that took place back in 2020 in the gardens of 10 Downing Street, a bring your own booze party, um, over 30 people attending. And as it turns out, the prime minister was there, as a result of which we got this in the House of Commons earlier. With hindsight, I should have sent everyone back inside. I should have found some other way to thank them. And I should have recognised that even if it could be said technically to fall within the guidance, there would be millions and millions of people who simply would not see it that way Tonight, Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister, but for how much longer? We're starting to hear talk that some MPs are actually prepared to put letters into the 1922 committee chair. Uh, This is the process uh, that starts potentially a move towards a leadership challenge for Boris Johnson. We are not there yet. He has a significant majority. There are many who believe that we will wait for the local elections a little later on this year in May before any such a move is made. Basically, if you shoot a Boris Johnson with a leadership challenge and miss and he remains as Prime Minister, you can't repeat the exercise for another 12 months. Bloomberg's Joe Mays, covering UK politics for us, joins us now 
on the line. Joe, um, the apology was exactly the apology that I think everybody expected. It kind of ticked all the boxes. It buys Boris Johnson a little bit of time. The question is, how much? Yeah, that is the question. I mean, he's got two big risks on the horizon. One is this report by the senior civil servant, Sue Gray, which looks at all the other alleged rule breaking in Downing Street at this time. If that report comes out and it's very bad for Johnson, that could be a big problem. We have a potential police investigation as well. That could be a big problem as well. So he's definitely not out of the woods. And as you say, there's a lot of uh, discontent amongst Tory MPs, but there isn't, it seems like, any imminent leadership contest. But, you know, there's, there's, there's so much bad feeling right now. I mean, the reason why I can't get enough of this story is that this constant scandals that follow Boris Johnson in some ways don't surprise me. But the sheer, what's the right word I'm looking for? Disaster that this is just (laughs) really, really strikes my fancy. Um, And I guess I wonder that as we're still in COVID, even if Omicron cases have peaked in London, there's still COVID policy that needs to be implemented, whether it's going to be mask wearing, whether it's going to be vaccines or boosters or a therapeutics. Why would anyone listen now to the government and do what they're told? Yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't help to have your leader openly talking about the fact that he broke the rules and went to a party and so on. Even if he didn't think he was breaking the rules, it is a, bit, it is a total mess, essentially. And this government is no longer focused on what it should be doing with the pandemic and so on. Instead, it's been caught up in this, in this psychodrama around this event, which happened in the pandemic. You know, it, it is all over the place. And yeah, I mean, on a news day like today, you forget there's a, there's a pandemic because we're, we're all talking about this, you know, this controversy. So, uh, yeah, it, it's completely thrown this administration off course. And MPs are just uh, are, are raging, basically. What could Boris Boris Johnson do to divert attention away from this? Uh, it, Cut taxes. It's so hard. That's a possibility. I mean, he, he basically needs just a few weeks of quiet so we don't get further revelations. And yeah, maybe it is something like a cutting taxes move, or maybe it's some big domestic initiative. He, we're expecting this levelling up paper, which is his kind of flagship policy. He just needs quiet on the scandal front and action on his actual policy front. That might get him somewhere, but we're very far from that right now. Okay, what else? <laughs> Well, we, 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 we are somewhat struggling. Or some kind of foreign, foreign, uh, something foreign story. So if Russia kicks off. Oh, or, good. Uh, okay. Know. Some disaster with Russia <laughs> and like an energy crisis. Yeah. Check. Basically that, yeah. <laughs> does does Boris Johnson have an obvious Britain. successor? Um, in Parliament, two names get spoken of, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. Whether either of those are ready uh, and kind of seen as totally credible right now, that's that's very much a live question. Um, so there isn't, I'd say no, there isn't. But um, you have two potential candidates who are definitely on manoeuvres and uh, would strike if, if the moment came. Um, when So here in the U.S., I feel like election seasons happens all the time. Like there's a reason why we say 100 days for an incoming president, because you literally only have 100 days until you're basically in some kind of re-election campaign mode. What is it like over in the U.K.? Like when do we start to turn to like the re-election speech rhetoric versus putting out fires now yeah i don't think it's as intense as the u.s but it's often say a year a year and a half before a general election and that could still be two two and a half years away so boris does still have time to you know implement an agenda and so on but he's he's losing it right now um and uh yeah he, he just needs to get back on track and he keeps getting blown away by these scandals is is the labor party is are the opposition benches in a position to take real advantage of this? I, I just, 
I listen to what is being said and it, it, it strikes a chord, but this, this feels like this is Boris Johnson's mess rather than the Labour Party's mm. kind of turning up and finally delivering. And I, and I wonder whether or not that is something that is going to keep Boris kind of where he is for now because, because actually the threat isn't that real. And while we while we get some protest votes at the, uh, the the local elections, they're not going to be that significant. I think that's a very valid point in terms of you know if you're a voter and you're thinking what kind of philosophy do I want to govern the country, what kind of ideas do I want to govern the country, you know what's been happening here won't necessarily maybe have changed your view. If it's you know, bad behaviour on the part of a prime minister, well that prime minister can be replaced. And if if you're still yeah. consistent with his philosophy, that's fine. I mean there's still the competence perception. Like do you still believe the Conservatives are a competent party? That might be damaged by this. But I think you're right in terms of Labour still isn't quite there as like a government in waiting. That they're trying to get there, and Starmer is making progress. But uh, you're right kind of on the fundamental issues, you might not see this episode as a reason to not vote Conservative in 2024. There's a long time to go in politics. Yeah, no kidding. Joe, thanks a lot. Joe Mays, Bloomberg UK uh, politics reporter on Partygate. Um, Super cool. Uh, It's really hard to find sympathy with these kind of situations. I have to be honest. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think in this particular case, it's really hard to find sympathy. For all uh, politicians, for, normally, for, that's how I well, feel. <laughs> absolutely. Up next, logistics, supply chains. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. So since the beginning of the year, we have had um, a little bit of a kerfuffle at UK ports as we see two new systems being brought into place uh, that are related to Brexit. The first one is a new IT system that is meant to govern imports. The second one are new customs uh, declaration forms that uh, hauliers have to manage. Both are relatively complicated uh, and as a result of which we are seeing problems at ports. But it might get worse later this year as we've seen the new phytosanitary requirements coming in as as well. So this just adds to the global supply chain snarl-ups uh, that we have been seeing uh, impacting economies around the world. Earlier, Alex and I caught up with Elizabeth de Jong, Logistics UK Policy Director, to get her take on what is happening. Yeah, so our um, um, assessment of it isn't uh, as, as negative as uh, your assessment there as well. Um, And that's because the checks that are and have come in from the UK border authorities, it's just checks on a proportion of goods that the custom declarations have been done correctly. So we weren't expecting wholesale um, systematic issues at all. Um, But there have been delays at EU ports such as Calais, and we don't have the official stats on the delay times. Uh, But we do know that they're to do with the incorrect or incomplete declarations from the goods vehicle movement system that you've been talking about. We are hearing that they're resolved within two hours generally, and we're hearing that up to about 90% have correct paperwork. Um, So some areas are more complex, mixed loads, groupage, more difficult for SMEs. Uh, But generally, we're seeing goods flow through at the moment. Um, Where is still the biggest bottleneck. And if I just kind of move the conversation on to lorry drivers, for example, I feel like that's all Guy talks about that in the weather. Lorry, the shortage of lorry drivers as well as the long queues of trucks. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of our industry, the shortage of lorry drivers has been very severe. 
um, lots of initiatives by government, uh, increased pay in the sector, uh, but that 60% uh, of our members still say that having severe or very severe issues with drivers. But there's other sectors too, particularly where I've been relying on EU workers, such as fitters, such as technicians, such as warehouse staff uh, as well. And yes, uh, issues with semiconductors too. Difficulties getting hold of new vehicles. Sometimes fleets are being cancelled too. So lots of issues still ahead uh, for our industry. We're flexible, we're determined, uh, but good, solid issues to really tackle in the year and okay. years ahead. Year and years ahead. So my sense is from you, Elizabeth, that this is not a situation that is going to be alleviated anytime soon. So in order to attract more people into our sector, there's uh, some changes that need to be made um, to the attractiveness. And particularly, I think one of the things that puts people off either themselves becoming lorry drivers or perhaps wanting their children to become lorry drivers is the vision we have of lorries parked up at the side of the roads in laybys and in industrial estates needing to sleep. It just doesn't feel safe. It isn't hygienic. Um, so we're really, uh, our ask from government at the moment is to focus on providing lorry parking spaces so our industry can catch up with others in terms of the terms and conditions and also how our industry is valued. What kind of wage increases do you think, though, short term, you're going to have to see to start making a dent? So we've already seen them go up by about 20% and even up to 39% for some uh, specialist roles as well. So wages have been going up. It's not all over the country, though. Um, some companies aren't experiencing difficulties, uh, but where they are, in, uh, wages have gone up and gone up quite dramatically. And that has eased things through. Uh, but we're also needing that catch up in the system uh, for driver testing, which was paused through COVID. There are about 45,000 driver tests that didn't take place. Um, so that stopped people entering the industry. But wages have gone up and that has been an attractor. Elizabeth de Jong, Logistics UK Policy Director, talking to Alex and I a little bit earlier on today. Up next, we'll stay with a similar sort of theme, uh, the cost of living crisis uh, that is hitting the UK so hard at the moment. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Everyone, I'm Alex Steele, Guy Johnson over in the UK. So I don't have really good news for you guys if you're living in the UK in terms of your energy prices and in terms of how you feel about your finances. So there was a, um, a survey today conducted that says that U.S. households' perceptions of their financial well-being declined at the fastest rate since the start of the pandemic. You have savings are dwindling, incomes are dropping, and now you have to add on some serious energy bills as well. How do you manage that? How bad does it... I just, I just it, say, there, yeah. there is even more on top of that. Okay. So interest rates are going to go up. National insurance, which is a, a labor market tax, is going up both for employees and employers. Uh, you've got other taxes going up as well. Um, huge challenges. Mm -hmm. I, so it, it's basically you've got a fiscal push. You've got inflation. You've got higher gas prices, higher oil prices, higher gasoline prices. I just higher grocery prices. Yep. I, I have to say. I, this is something I get home at night, 
And this is something that my wife brings up now with increasing frequency. In in can I ask in what capacity is it like we're not going to spend big, we're not going to go on a vacation, we're not going to buy big purchases, or is it just like hey, what's going on? Well, it's just kind of this is more expensive, this is more expensive, this is more expensive. Mm-hmm. I honestly, day by day, groceries are just going up across the board. In fact, everything is I, the gas bill is going up. You, you you get the kind of I just everything is going up and, and at quite an aggressive clip. So that does not sound very good. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Reed Landberg, Bloomberg UK economy reporter, uh, is joining us now. So, Reed, we just painted a pretty glum picture. And at the same time, as Guy pointed out, we could get a rate increase. um, And you're also looking at potentially higher taxes as well. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on at the same time where you still have COVID. Um, What does this do to the UK economy? Well, it's definitely not good. The surveys so far are showing just a little bit of a softening up in the rate of growth, a little softening in the rate of hiring. And I think that's because none of this has really hit yet. The bad things that are going to hit really start hitting in April. In April, here in the UK, they adjust energy bills twice a year in October and April. So in April, they're very likely to go up from £1,300 a year on average, to £2,000 a year. That's something on the order of 60 quid a month for most people. And, and given all of that, so, so here is my question. Which is the bigger threat to the Bank of England right now, inflation or growth? Right now, they're definitely pivoting toward concern about inflation. They've, um, there was a real, a real certain pivot in the middle, in late last year, Uh, You know, they saw that the economy was bedding down, that things were growing, and they got worried that inflation is coming back with a roar. You know, now they're estimating that inflation is going to top 6% sometime in the first half of this year, and that's triple their target. So they're definitely in the inflation fighting mode. Yeah, but Reed, but like a... building expectations. But but a rate hike isn't going to make the wind blow faster or more LNG come into the country, for example. It's not going to help lower grocery bills. No, it won't, but it will choke off those second-round effects, and that's what they're really worried about. You know, it's one thing to have energy prices going up. It's another thing to have people demanding higher wages and putting up prices of goods of all kinds because they expect prices to go up. That's what they want to stop. Um, But but what about the impact on growth? So you've got fiscal drag, you're going to have monetary drag. You've got inflation eating away at disposable income. At the moment, you've got incomes lagging inflation. Why are, are we heading towards a recession in this country? That's not the forecast so far. Last year, we had growth of almost 7%. And this year, we're looking for growth of 5%. And say they shave a little of that off because of Omicron, because of the headwinds we're all talking about, it's still stronger growth than we've seen before. And it's very likely that the economy in the first quarter is going to go back to being as big as it was before the pandemic. So this is definitely not an economy that's headed into recession at the moment. But But you never know how these things pile up. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a heart. I guess let's go to the BOE for a second. Are we looking at kind of a one rate hike and done, a couple and done? I mean, here in the U.S., we're talking like now four this year or potentially three. And then instead of that, you have a balance sheet runoff. Uh, Loretta Mester getting increasingly, uh, if that was even possible, more hawkish. Is the BOE going to stop and start then? I think it depends entirely on events. You know, the market is saying that we'll 
have rates up to 1% by the end of the year, by the end of this year. They're about a 0.25% right now. But there's other voices out there thinking that they could go much higher. You know, looking at the Fed and what they're doing, that could force the BOE to go higher. David Miles, a former Bank of England rate setter, who's joining the Treasury's Office for Budget Responsibility, thinks the market ought to be thinking about 3% rates. Can the UK economy take, uh, given the level of indebtedness in this country, can the UK economy take 3% interest rates? Like, well, they talk. They talk in this. Read. They talk in the states about a policy mistake becoming a real issue for the Fed. Is the Bank of England in a similar position? They talk about that here too. The market thinks both that the Bank of England is going to raise interest rates aggressively and that that's a mistake. And the idea that the bank doesn't see that coming is is kind of crazy to me. Some of those bets are going to be wrong, but also. Increasingly, most people's mortgages are fixed rate terms for five years or more. So interest rates aren't going to feed through the way they have in the past year. Hmm. True. All right. So this is the question I wanted to ask for the last 48 hours. What are you guys going to do at home to keep warm if you have no heat and it's really cold and everything's expensive? Guy. Got a dog. It's fine. We're going to cuddle with the dog. Yeah. Do you have enough dogs for the whole family? No, it can share the dog around. Share the it's dog fine. around. Okay. And I say this because, remember, there was that piece yesterday that uh, from one of the energy suppliers that had some really, I- I'm sorry, can I just, offensive... Can I just be, po- yes. Can I just be... It, it, it doesn't get that cold here. Like, it gets cold, but it's not It's not as cold as but, it is over in the United States right now. For instance, in New York, how cold is it? Sure. Currently, at this exact moment in time, 35 degrees. Heat so you need baby. a dog. You need a dog. Nah. Yesterday was 16. Yesterday was like my ears are going to fall off. That was a whole different kind of thing. Um, I don't want a dog, though. I'll just cuddle with my kid. Um, 1.6 Celsius, I guess, is, is what that would have been for you guys. Hey, Reed, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Reed Landberg, uh, who covers the UK economy for us. Coming up, we'll get more on that inflation data and what it means for the Fed. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. I think we're probably right at the peak on headline inflation now, obviously incredibly high right now at 7%. Um, but the core is probably going to move a little bit higher over the next few months. I see the peak probably in March of 2022 on core inflation. And, you know, and then from there, I think we should see, as you mentioned, the base effects starting in April, a steady decline on that growth rate on inflation moving forward. That was Omer Sharif, Inflation Insights founder and president. He's kind of the guy we go to. He really digs deep into all the granular uh, inflationary numbers. And he kind of needed to because there was a hot, hot reading. A CPI increase at the fastest pace here in the U.S. since 1982. We already did the Eye of the Tiger thing, but E.T. was also the movie of the year. E.T. phone home. Up 7%. Seven handled. There you go. But the core... Um, uh, well, actually, I should say on a monthly basis, prices actually rose five tenths of one percent. That was faster uh, than estimated. You seem to have broader inflationary pressures, whether you're looking at used cars, food, clothing, rental uh, uh, prices, energy costs fell. But you have to wonder when you have WTI over eighty if that's really going to last. The market reaction, as we mentioned, though, very calm. Some buying coming into the long end here, uh, and still some buying coming into the equity market. Feels very calm. Lower dollar though. So let's get more insight here. I Jersey joins us. He's the chief um, U.S. Mar- uh, interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, Ira, did you agree with Omer that we're going to see sort of the peak in the middle of the year? 
Yeah, so, so the, the peak for core is especially is going to be what we're, we have to look out for because that, that tends to be much stickier than, than some of those headline numbers. Um, but, yeah, sometime you know, between March and, and May we should get a, a peak if, if we haven't already peaked uh, in terms of the year-on-year print. So, uh, you know, the market is certainly uh, you know, going to be paying close attention to this. But uh, like you mentioned, you know, the market reaction in the rates market initially was not – uh, very significant, you know. Pe- people, the numbers were close enough to as expected that uh, that people didn't really move around their positions very much. How quickly does inflation come down? Yeah, so so inflation tends to move in these uh, long cycles, but but when you look at the components, so we have a really in the terminal, we have a really neat feature. If you do ECAN on the terminal. One of the things that you can get is the four major sectors of CPI. So um, those are energy, uh, food, then you have goods, and you have services. So when you, when you look at those energy and food, those were massive drivers of the, of the rise in inflation that we've had. In fact, about half of inflation over the last couple of months has come from uh, increases in, in food and food and energy. As if food and energy stabilize from here, then the, the you can actually get a very significant, a very quick slowdown in um, uh, in inflation. And in fact, the market is expecting mm-hmm. that. In fact, the market's pricing right now for inflation to go from seven percent year on year where we are now to four percent year on year um, at the end of this year. So, so, so you're looking at a very steep glide path, you know, down three percent um, mm. over the course of the next twelve months. This might be a really silly question, but is four percent still high? I have no concept <laughs> anymore of like what is high yeah, inflation. Yeah. I, I mean, it's certainly higher than what the Federal Reserve would want, right? So, so that means that as long as we remain kind of in that in that kind of range above three percent, I think you have to think that the Federal Reserve is going to try to uh, take steps to try and decrease the uh, the rate of inflation. Um, but but at some point, you know, the the challenge that policymakers are going to have, and and not only in the U.S. but but globally, is how do they increase interest rates to try and get inflation down when a lot of inflation is coming from uh, from the supply side issues that we've been having and talked about you know quite extensively um, as opposed to the demand side so normally sustained inflation and the inflation that that monetary policymakers can can affect it tends to stem from the demand side of the equation so higher wages leading to more uh, robust demand more demand than uh, meeting that that suppliers have to increase their output and 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 or raise their prices. We're not at that situation right now, right? We actually have in large part to the economy, particularly those goods and, um, and, and food prices are being significantly affected by the supply side. And, that, you know, so things like people calling out sick from meatpacking plants in the Midwest, in the U.S., raising meat prices, that's not something the Fed can help with, right? That, mm-hmm. In fact, raising interest rates might actually hurt that because you disincentivize then, say, building an automated factory that you might find finance with debt if you raise interest rates. So, so it's, it's going to be a very difficult balancing act, I think, for central banks to, to kind of handle the inflation that we're getting today versus inflation that we've had in the past. People are beginning to talk about recession risk. Um, there is concern that the Fed is going to struggle to deliver the soft landing that Jay Powell talked about yesterday. Can we quantify kind of how big the challenge is for the Fed to deliver a soft landing at the same time as bringing down inflation. How, how difficult a job is that going to be? Uh, incredibly difficult. And in fact, the market doesn't think that the Fed can do it. So right now, 
uh, we're priced for the Federal Reserve to, to hike six times over the next 18 months and then stop. And what that's signaling, I think, in large part is a the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates and the economy slowing substantially enough that they're going to have to stop and then potentially ease uh, interest rates and, and, and cut interest rates in 2024. So we're talking about an environment that it's going to be incredibly tricky for the Fed and, and indeed global central banks to kind of to, to not slow the economy into some, you know, if, if not recession, then certainly a substantial slowdown. And, and that's the trick. And I, I think the way that you have to avoid that uh, and, and the Fed will ultimately probably come to this conclusion too, and, and the markets will then follow. Is that that the Fed will hike more slowly than is currently being priced? But ultimately, they might be able to hike a little more as inflation starts to ebb, and, and they're they're able to um, to continue to continue to hike. And, Can- and of course, there's one big thing that we have here, uh, you know, Alex. Mm-hmm. Is, um, is that the Fed will roll off its balance sheet, and and it's unclear uh, that probably won't directly affect um, what, uh, the economy in the near term because there's so much excess liquidity out there. So so that is one hawkish move that I think that they'll take very early in the cycle. So that's actually what I wanted to ask about because you said markets looking at like six rate increases, right? Could they substitute or add on? actual balance sheet reduction, not just roll-off, but actual balance sheet reduction to compensate for a hike, in lieu of a hike, I guess, which also gives them a little bit more maneuvering if they do tip us into a recession. Yeah, so, so I think that is one of the actions that they'll take. And they'll basically say, hey, we're, we're running off the balance sheet, and that is going to um, you know, act like the opposite of what quantitative easing did. So, um, so, so this is a hawkish action, and, and they'll at least give lip service to that. You know, it, it, it won't be for a little while, and, and the reason is, is that there's so much excess liquidity out there. You look at the $1.5 trillion that's in the reverse repurchase agreement facility, and that suggests that there's just uh, you know, $1.5 trillion of extra money in the economy right now that needs to be drained before um, any kind of balance sheet reduction is, can be considered um, uh, can be considered monetary tightening. Um, now, now c- can they sell? I, gu- I guess Alex, you're asking if they could sell assets. The answer is yes, they could. Um, I-, I don't think that they will. And certainly, Chair Powell yesterday in his confirmation hearing, said, did, you know, did, he of course he kept everything yeah. on the table and said we haven't made any decisions. But he did say like, look, last time we we ran off and that went reasonably well until at the very end it didn't. Just um, in terms but, of that runoff, but, very briefly, I, they've got a lot of bills. That runoff could happen quite quickly, presumably. Yeah, so, so they have $300 billion in, in Treasury bills. So if they wanted to, they could use those Treasury bills. And certainly my, my friend Mark Cabana over at Bank of America has suggested they could do that. So it's, mm. it's certainly a possibility. Ira, thank you so much. Love talking to you. Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to take a look at banks. you got banks on Friday. you got Jeffrey sliding the most in almost two years. That never tends to bode well, as you had uh, uh, trading just not holding up to what we saw in the last year. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. Um, It's news crossing, actually. HSBC in talks to move its New York headquarters to Hudson Yard. I've seen a number of those headlines today. It does seem as if uh, maybe there is a bit of a uh, a, a, a maneuvering when it comes to to office space uh, in New York City. Alex, this is actually quite an interesting subject in as much as I'm trying to gauge 
whether or not people are coming back to the office right now. My my kind of daily litmus test of what is happening here is is what is happening on my train, which is starting to get a little bit busier. But my sense is that the UK is definitely sort of poised over the next kind of week, 10 days to start to really think about the idea that we could be coming out of this. The data is coming down relatively quickly uh, in terms of the case count numbers. Mm -hmm. People certainly seem to be kind of warming up for the idea that that maybe actually, certainly by the end of January, we could be post-pandemic. Maybe we need to worry about other variants, but certainly that is, that's kind of the way that the mood music uh, is kind of taking us. Well, I also have to wonder, too, though, if the reaction function changes. So when you had Delta, it was delay, delay, delay. Omicron, delay, delay, delay. It, is that the pattern? Is it going to be work from home before we get to the peak, right after the peak reopen? Or do we just sort of deal with this a little bit better and get better at testing, better at masking and those kind of things, making it more endemic? And then in which case the reaction function changes and people can actually come back to the office. So it's really interesting. Uh, There's also, um, I'm just sort of slightly putting the pieces together. There's a lot of talk about getting rid of free testing. Um, But there's some talk about bringing in free masking, i.e. kind of allowing the government to subsidize the, the higher quality masks, which actually may be more, more effective. Mm-hmm. I, I'd be surprised if we ended up dealing with sort of getting rid of free testing kind of anytime soon. But, but I, I, the, the kind of the idea in Europe, and it's not just in the UK, but elsewhere as well, despite the high case count numbers, is there's, there's this kind of view that, that certainly we are moving into an endemic phase. Mm-hmm. The Spanish have been talking about this a lot over the last few days. There was a comment earlier on uh, from some of the authorities talking about the idea that we shouldn't have a fourth shot, that that can actually be damaging to your immune system. Mm-hmm. We're over overdoing it on the immunity front. Yeah. Um, we're so not at that point yet here in the U.S. I don't, I don't know how we get to that kind of endemic living with it with rules that make sense situation in the middle of now a midterm election cycle when President Biden is now talking about filibuster. Like what? Like the population is dealing with COVID and inflation. Like what are we doing talking again about the filibuster? Um, So I feel like we're definitely not uh, at that place. I do, though, feel whether you're looking at masks or testing, it's really about the schools. Like, what's going to make the schools function best? This time around, it wasn't keeping kids at home necessarily because they got COVID. That obviously happened. Or because you were worried they were going to get COVID. You're, the schools are closing here because teachers are. are there's a huge, huge yeah, shortage. I, that, that, is a, that is a huge problem here as well. How but do you let, keep them in, in school? That's the thing. But that feels, certainly here, that feels like a near-term problem. Um, and... As case counts come down, that presumably will be alleviated relatively quickly. But it's still going to keep coming back. I mean, like, as, as we get new variants and stuff, well, I th- I, it's yeah. endemic. Yes, but, but maybe we learn to treat it like flu, mm-hmm. i.e. you don't not go to work, or maybe you quarantine for a significantly shorter period of time. There's certainly talk about bringing in shorter um, quarantine periods right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you take it down to five days, that's going to alleviate some of the problems that we're seeing. It's not just schools, it's the hospitality sector, it's the healthcare sector, all kinds of problems being experienced uh, all over the place. So that is, that is a massive problem. Um, but that goes think- to your point about do you put your effort behind masks or tests? And maybe masks is the better way to go. Well, maybe maybe you just have to do both. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe just people have to get used to testing and wearing masks, but actually realize that that 
they are probably going to get it at some point. Um, they don't need to quarantine for a very long period of time. They can get back to work relatively quickly. If you get the flu or you get a bad cold, you take a couple of days off work and then you go back to work relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. And you don't get this kind of huge swathes of the population uh, calling out sick. But but it, it certainly feels like the next few days, maybe the next few weeks, are going to are going to deliver that pivot in some shape or form. So we'll certainly be watching out for that. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Big Banks set to start reporting on Friday. You're listening to The Cable. We are going to dissect it. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be interesting. You're going to get you know, bonuses, wages, war for talent, investment banking, and trading. So typically, we like to look at Jefferies because it's sort of an arbiter of what we're going to see in the actual underlying bank earnings. And today, doesn't look good. Jefferies' uh, stock is sliding the most in almost two years. It said that fixed income trading revenue tumbled 50% from a year earlier. And that slump contributed to a 28% overall drop uh, in revenue um, from its overall trading operations. So, it wasn't really great. Um, Jeffries was saying primarily due to challenging market conditions for fixed income trading leading to lower volumes as compared with the prior year quarter, which benefited from high levels of client activity. All right, so let's break it down a little bit more here. Uh, Shanali Bassett, who covers Wall Street for us, joins us now. What were some of your big takeaways from Jeffries? It's interesting because the fixed income trading decline was stark. But remember, these Jeffries numbers, they are a bellwether for the rest of Wall Street. They don't include December. So when we read through and think about the other banks, what are the expectations? There's still a significant decline for J.P. Morgan. Analysts are expecting, on average, a more than 70% decline in total trading, with the bulk of that being in fixed income. But interestingly, they're not expecting investment bank revenue to jump so much as to make up for that decline, which is the real issue here. And so, with investment banking even being an estimated 18% higher... Are you okay? Do you need to drink a sip of water? <laughs> Cut my throat. It happens. Sorry about that. But... Yeah, well, the key takeaway here is the drop in trading is meaningful, given how much it's contributed to the bottom line for the last year for these banks. What's the nearest comparable to what Jefferies is saying today? I, what's the read across? We start getting the big banks later on this week. Well, J.P. Morgan is probably the most important on Friday because it is a fixed income powerhouse. Citigroup as well, and they have different mixes of businesses. Fixed income is usually fixed income rates, commodities. It's a big, big division that has a lot of different types of businesses. So not all the banks are going to be doing the same. If you look at Citigroup, commodities went gangbusters at the end of last quarter. And there was still a lot of volatility, and a lot of banks expect rates to come back. So there, it's not that all the banks will be hit the same by any means. And by the way, as the market starts to shrink for fees, the ones that will look to still keep more market share in that smaller fee mm-hmm. pool is really what we're going to be watching for. And Goldman Sachs, in that regard, how much they've caught up in trading while still growing other businesses has been notable. Okay, so let's go to investment banking for a second. What are going to be the standouts? So what we know is the league tables, and the league tables are very forward-looking because the banks don't book the fees until the deal is closed, where the league tables, which is a ranking of how well they do, is when those deals are announced. 
So Goldman Sachs being number one by quite the margin should mean that in the coming quarters, they should be making more in advisory fees. And the estimate now is more than a billion dollars for J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs in advisory alone. But, you know, one other thing that people should watch out for is the fact that IPOs have cooled down quite a bit from records last year. Hot, hot SPAC market last year that's also cooled down. And that will also impact Goldman, Morgan Stanley, and, and other banks that are smaller, Credit Suisse, Cantor Fitzgerald, that have just made so much money last year from the SPAC market. Are we finally going to see some dispersion between performance of these banks? Definitely. And what's interesting is some of the bigger consumer banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, on one hand, you have the potential for rising interest rates to help them gain more net interest income, but the yield curve is still so flat, which is not a great sign for these firms. How much are they really going to bring in? In the most recent quarter, loans have come back pretty significantly. Jamie Dimon expects in the coming quarters it'll be back to normal completely. Credit cards have been the biggest winner in that category. And again, that's a J.P. Morgan story right there, uh, the card business. Mm -hmm. But it is a competitive business. It has also been a business where consumers have been paying down their balances. So even if credit card balances are being taken out, they're being paid down fairly quickly. And so getting making interest on that is not happening for the banks at a large scale. So it's a, it's a messier story for the banks. They're part of this big macro story uh, mm-hmm. that value is safer. But we'll see, because they still have a lot of headwinds ahead. Yeah, I was wondering, and this is more of a macro question, so, so I don't know how, how, how well the three of us can answer it. But, I mean, if you wind up having a world where the Fed is hiking, but the curve flattens, I have. I mean, isn't that a, not a good scenario for these banks? Yeah, that's exactly right. The the flatter yield curve is just as important as the fact that rates are rising themselves. And if you look at the 210 curve and the 530, I mean, it's just not. You know, the last couple of days have been flattening days for sure. I mean, among the the rate hike story. So the the comfort that the market has in the Federal Reserve to control the long end of the curve does not seem to be there, and that's a problem for the banks, especially as they control their own balance sheets and how they think about lending into the future, not just to consumers, but as they think about their own treasury yeah. books and securities books. Does credit quality still hold up in these kinds of environments? So they do, but Guy, you know, you and I especially have been talking about this idea that if that flatter yield curve becomes an inverted yield curve and recessionary fears start to rise again, all of a sudden you have a scared market, you have more potential downgrades ahead of you, and credit quality becomes a concern. But the thing that everyone is so interested in right now are some of the riskiest parts of the debt markets. That's leverage loans, that's CLOs, mm-hmm. and it's areas where the market is being propped up by still a lot of deal activity that's going on. It, it's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I wonder who's going to give the biggest pay bumps, <laughs> the biggest bonus pools. Looks like are finally getting their day in the sun after the traders have had it so good for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But again, I keep on saying this to everybody I see, the executives I speak to, they're equally cautioning their staff to not expect these bonuses to continue and to mm-hmm. really start to prepare themselves for more pressure on uh, pay because these banks have to invest in technology and other things that are going to pressure margins. Hence the whole inflation story could be transitory. Um, ooh. 
That was kind of a rhyme. Um, Shanali, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the coverage. Shanali Basic joining us, Wall Street correspondent. That wraps it up for me and Guy. You've been listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Catch us as a podcast on Spotify and iTunes, and we will see you tomorrow. Have a wonderful night. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.